I think it's really interesting that David Icke, say, complains of, I don't know, being connected to the hive mind, even though he already is. I mean, you're right now speaking to thousands of people simultaneously, which is a selective hive mind, be a piece of tech. It's just not integrated into your brain. That's the only difference. As for Wi-Fi fields, um, do you think that the internet is what a simulated reality pulled over our eyes or just an interface? Because it's No, he's saying interface. we're already in a false reality. Sorry, I'll shut up. He's saying we're already in a false reality, and they're creating a system within a system, right, David? That's that's uh, that's absolutely right. I, but there's a big difference from the, what the the gentleman's just said that we're in a hive mind and all that stuff as as we're speaking. But um, you know, there's a difference between um, having uh, connections with people and uh, communications with people, and having the the perceptions that we make of what we say and what we make of That's what right. other people say. The system, being, it's going to show us the input it wants, is, is the issue. Yeah, being given to us by a hive mind. You know, um, it was kind of funny how sci-fi kind of later mirrors reality. It's probably not a coincidence either. And um, in um, uh, Star Trek, they had uh, the uh, the Borg. And the Borg were uh, kind of a, a, a kind of part technological kind of race. And uh, what they uh, did was um, uh, infuse people with um, like nano probes uh, to make them part of the Borg hive mind, the collective, as they called it. And those nanoprobes we now call smart dust, nanobots, nanotechnology, all these things. And this is all building this, um, this hive mind that I'm talking about. And uh, like I say, communication is fine and interaction is fine. We should have it. Of course we should. That's why I'm glad the Putin uh, interview happened. But um, there's a, a big difference between that and having our perceptions controlled in um, in, in and David, let me say this. this. Notice how the globalists want to kill individual free communication in the Internet. They want it to all be through this filter, which is another form of the virtual reality paradigm you're talking about. But I, I forget the name of the person commenting. But, sir, do you want to have a comeback to David? I right, go ahead. Yeah, you're already connected to all of this. You think that everything is different or that we don't have a smart dust, so to speak. You don't need smart dust when you have a device that is capable of all the things that you've mentioned and you are already connected to the hive mind. What, what the hell are you communicating on right now? Who are you communicating with? All the people, their perceptions shared through a medium of speech. Like there is structurally no difference between having a bunch of nanobots running through your bloodstream accomplishing the same thing when you're holding a device that is connected to this thing that is a field of information that is the internet. There's nothing wrong about it. There's nothing strange about it. It's just the way things are. Integrating stuff like this into our cells biologically just removes the latency and decreases the latency for information transfer. By the way, I think this is Elon There's Musk. Really no is this Elon Musk? It, it, it's really not. No, no, it's really not. I'm just weird. Don't worry about it. Well, you, you could be a dead ringer for him. Well, the Elon clone, what else do you oh, want to yeah, say? 100%. <laughs> Elon clone, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. There are theories. There are theories. Yeah, there are theories. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Right. It's, it's kind of stupid. Don't worry about it. I am uh, Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I am joined, as always, by our super producer, Jake Appett, and our very talented graphic designer, J. Andrew World. In a few minutes, we are joined, going to be joined by Richard R.J. Esco to talk about uh, his excellent current affairs essay, uh, The Dystopias.
of uh, yesterday, right? Yesterday's dystopia is one of those. Uh, so uh, in any case, uh, it's uh, it's a really interesting essay. It gets into the experience of uh, dystopias of yesterday. There we go. Got it right the first time. Uh Gets into the experience of growing up in a very different world as a fan of science fiction and the ways that the dystopian fiction he was reading uh, was uh, informed by the politics of the creators and uh, the ways that in some ways the, you know, the present uh, feels like a science fiction dystopia, you know, from, uh, from the past. Uh, it's a really interesting essay, really fun essay. Really looking forward to uh, to chatting about that. But before that, Andy, what the fuck was that? That was a clip from Alex Jones, uh, where uh, Adrian Dittman, who uh, the you know the internet does not know who he is, um, uh, if he's a real person or if he's an alt of uh, Elon Musk. Uh, he's a tw- uh, it's a Twitter account that praises Elon Musk a lot. Um, uh, but however, his voice uh, sounds just like Elon Musk. Yeah, uh, and so like whether it's Elon Musk or somebody doing a type of AI thing where to make himself sound like Elon Musk, it's it's kind of brilliant either way uh, to hear him like call into Alex Jones and ask questions about you know the mind viruses and you know all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, the, I mean, in a way, just having a possible ambiguous. Uh, Elon Musk out, a uh, weird fanboy who's has a really good imitation of Elon Musk. Uh, calling in to Alex Jones is weird enough that you almost miss the fact, like it's almost lost in all the other weirdness, that the guest is David Icke, right? Who is uh, best known for, uh, is actually, uh, like all the best people, Chris Kirsten Cinema, et cetera, uh, David Icke uh, used to be a Green Party guy. But uh, he is best known now for his belief in lizard people uh, who are controlling everything. Yeah, as uh, as an artist rendition of a lizard person with a human mask. I believe that's uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, And according to David Icke, uh, there are um, many of your your favorite politicians, globalists, etc., are are in fact lizard people. and. you know, and just the fact that that David Icke is like the least crazy thing going on in that screen is kind of amazing in itself. Yeah, he was the voice of reason, uh, which was like Elon Musk is like basically saying, uh, "Well, I'm assuming I'm calling him Elon Musk." Uh, you know, yeah, I'll just call him Elon. Yeah, but he was basically saying there's no difference between having this and this being literally um, in your brain in my brain. Uh, which is uh, <laughs> structurally, there's no difference. Uh, like, no, because I, I, I didn't really know who David Icke was, but that much, but you guys told me he was a lizard people guy. Uh, but then when I was watching that, I was like, I agree with David Icke on this. It's, 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 a, it's, it's different to like talk to people on the internet. <laughs> As opposed to having your braid have like a chip in it. That's, that's like, yeah, no, that does do seem importantly different to me also. Um, I would say probably the rest of David Icke's views, you know, you probably find more areas of disagreement. Uh, than, well, it was, uh, yeah, it was Alex Jones saying that just to be clear, David Icke, you think that we're already in a simulation 
This is, I think that's what he was saying. And then this is a simulation. <laughs> There's a lot this, of talk of the Matrix in this in this uh, segment. <laughs> but it's funny that David Icke is so worried about like nanobots being in your brain when we're already in a simulation. I feel like at that point, just go out and fucking you know eat the burger like uh, what's his name does in the Matrix. You know, if we're already in a simulation, I'm not going to worry about going like two levels deep <laughs> and worrying yeah. about like further infiltration. I said, you know, just enjoy your life at that point. I think. Yeah, I always thought it was a shame that the Matrix sequels that, uh, you know, they had, like, when Keanu gets up to talk to the architect at the end of the second one, that, uh, that like, the architect just, like, babbles incoherent nonsense at him, and it really seems like they're missing a trick. There, Surely the twist should have been, like, second-level Matrix, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, could, we could all agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, fun fact about David Icke, uh, I have not read any of his books, so I suppose I can't comment, but uh, I, I do think I have a PDF of one of them lying around because uh, a couple of years ago, I read uh, Megan McCain's book, uh, Bad Republican, to review for Jacobin, and um, and I actually listened to the audiobook. It's very short. Uh, it's It's like, whatever. You know, it's it's padded out with stuff like, uh, like she literally spends like paragraphs describing memes she saw that she saw that she thinks are funny, like it's that kind of book, uh, and wow. it's still really short, right? <laughs> but uh, as I was writing this review for Jacobin, so I listened to it on the audiobook, but then uh, I just grabbed a PDF that I found online because uh, you know I wanted to like look up a couple specific passages to reference for the review. And whatever uh, website I was getting that from, uh, the PDF I downloaded at the end of Megan McCain's book has one of David Icke's books. So I think it's possible that this is just a thing that David Icke's followers do to try to get the word out that they like stick his books at the end of, you know, of, of books that, you know, unsuspected uh, globalist shills might read. Or, or, you know, people they think as lizard people. Right. <laughs> yeah, if you're reading one of the lizard people books, yeah. and surely Megan McCain is a is a lizard person. I mean, you know, Absolutely. just a masterful manipulator. Um, if there's there's ever has been one. All right. So do you want to watch? Uh we're gonna be joined by RJ in just a few minutes, I think, but do you want to watch just a little bit more of this conversation? Yeah, I think Elon has a little bit more to say. I I, I just think this I, I just think it is ironic. I mean, you want to talk about the simulation. Everybody started speaking of the topic of simulation, how we're in this false reality ever since the Matrix movie dropped. A lot of people are afraid of it, but they don't even understand the context of why the movie even happened and why everyone's so afraid of it. When in reality, everybody got afraid of being integrated with machines and how machines were advancing faster than the things that created them, thereby the fear caused the disaster, which then caused the simulation within the matrix. It's crazy, right? And even then, everybody bases their ideology of a simulation based off of a movie that they themselves haven't even fully understood, because if you did, you'd realize that there is no real world at all. I mean, what, what do you think this is? And, do you, and, and, and even if it is a simulation, what are you going to do? Are you going to break it? What's the point? I mean, you, you can play it and you can build really cool shit. You can craft it and make it better. I think that's what you have to do. If you're going to break it, that's just an equivalent of killing yourself. And if you're going to break it for everyone else, then that's called mass murder. That's called genocide. So don't break the simulation. I, I, quite, I, don't, I, don't understand the, I don't understand the resistance for understanding the world in which we're in to the extent that we say we could shape it to make it better, but we're just trying to understand it to break it. 
Well, uh, whoever this is, please don't hang up. We're on radio station. We have to go to break in a moment. But David Ike, you're talking to somebody that AI print is uh, is Elon Musk or is, is his twin, his doppelganger. What do you want to say to this caller? Well, is it is it better that we know about the reality that we're in and how we're creating it and what it's designed to do or not to know and be in complete ignorance of the very reality we are experiencing? What people do with the knowledge of um, understanding uh, the reality that they are in uh, is up to them completely. But um, we should surely be pursuing an understanding of what is this place? What are we doing here? Um, otherwise, you know, we just go through life being pawns of a, a game. We don't David, we got to go to break. And I want to ask the ex-poster that sounds just like Elon Musk. A dead ringer. Please stay there if you can. We, we're on radio station, so we have to at least break twice an hour. We got to go to a three-minute break. We're going to come right back. I hope the caller stays there. It sounds just like Elon Musk. But I get the point of the Elon Musk-sounding person. He's saying, if we don't use tools like the Native Americans didn't have guns, so they lost, he's saying, why not use it? It's kind of what I'm getting. But we'll come right back and have the person that sounds just like Elon Musk a little bit of an angry Elon Musk, finish up what he wants to say, and then and they'll get David Icke here. This is I am in the twilight zone right now. Cut David Icke and a guy that sounds just like Elon Musk. And I've been on it with two and a half hours of Elon Musk before. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we're going to figure this out. This is News Megan. Stay with us. Media Matters, yeah, the Democratic Party. That, uh, the part that confuses me most about this is uh, Alex thinking that sounds like an angry Elon Musk. That sounds like a call me Elon Musk. <laughs> That that's true. Maybe I guess Elon's probably usually in a good mood when he's talking to when he's talking to Alex. <laughs> the most angry he's the most angry he's seen him. Yeah, I mean, honestly, most of the times I've heard Elon's voice, he sounds like kind of vaguely irritated. Like you know, it's like that. That sounded pretty. You know, that sounded pretty chill. I actually think it's probably not Elon, although it's pretty close. But the uh, but in any case. Uh, yeah, that guy sounded uh, sounded reasonably chill. It is pretty funny. Do you know what he's talking about when he said he was on for two and a half hours with Elon Musk? Uh, yeah. I have to look that up. I, I okay. Yeah, and he's our expert on these kind of things. So, that's true. That's yeah. true. This is definitely his area. Uh, this is because, you know, that would be pretty funny if it were true. Because... Um, and it would actually be even funnier if Elon Musk uh, actually was like just calling in with his alt account to alex jones because you know famously at one point like not long after elon acquired twitter uh you know he was refusing to bring alex jones back onto the platform right he uh he said uh like you know somebody like said oh you should like bring back alex jones and he like quote tweeted it and with something about sandy hook and like a quote from the bible about you know not suffering those who hurt little children or something like that um, which was, you know, one of the early signs that it's like, okay, um, you know, what he really means about the free speech absolutism is that, you know, stuff that doesn't happen to personally offend him uh, is uh, is fine, which is a great standard that you just have, like, you know, one really rich dude who, you know, who, yeah, you know, uh, important communication platforms are just kind of governed by his whims. But yes, if, if he's gone all the way around the event horizon on this and that not only is he allowed to be on Twitter, but that he'll call in to uh, he'll call into his radio show anonymously just because he's that eager to talk to Alex Jones. That would be a pretty amazing plot twist. 
Yeah, according to this article, uh, back in December, uh, Elon did an about face, unbanned Alex Jones, brought him on X, and oh, host interview with him. Wow, and hosted, and hosted an interview with him. Yeah, so uh, there's definitely two wolves inside of of, of Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're both terrible. Well, yeah, but they yeah. they have the neural link, so it's really just kind of local. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I do see that we've got RJ. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's bring him on. Richard, Hello. welcome back. Oh, it's great to be back. I don't see myself in the corner there. I uh, is something I wrong? You. Yeah, I we see you. Okay. I'm just a black square on my. Uh, I'm just a void on my you know, <laughs> uh, my own screen, but uh, it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes you stare at the void, and the void stares back. Anyway, it's uh, it's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you. So I really enjoyed this essay. Uh, this is uh, the dystopias of uh, of yesterday, and it's really about a few things. Uh, at once, uh, but you know, but one of them is this this vivid sense that you know that the um, the the present you know was was once the past, and you know, and and the less distant past you know was uh, was also uh, was also the past. Uh, you know, I, I am uh, you know younger than you. We did the math and you know realized that, but the uh, but uh, in. Uh, but one of the things I thought about while I was reading this is I could like really vividly remember. I, I think it was the mid nineties sometime that uh, President Clinton um, like approved the global positioning system for civilian use, and I can vividly remember being in a Radio Shack, which is already a story that you know a fact that locates right. the story well into the past, and uh, seeing a GPS that was sold there, like for a car. And uh, in the late nineties and I'd never heard of it before. And just like looking at the description and think, well, that can't possibly be real. That's just silly. Right. Like that, that doesn't even make sense. Like how, how is that possible? Cause it sounded like some total science fiction nonsense. Well, you know, I, I'll go you one better as you might expect, given our difference in age, which is, uh, and, and good to see Andy and Jake, and Andy and I go back a long ways, but mostly through social media, so good to see you. Um, I was dating a young woman in college who had a job in the offices of Macy's or something in Oakland, one of the department stores, and she said, we got this machine where you can send an image of a document all the way to our office in New York, and it only takes about 25 minutes each page to <laughs> all the facts. And, you know, in 25 minutes, you can send a page to, you know, I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous, right? You know, so. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, you, you talk in, uh, uh, in the essay, you know, there are there are several things like this, but you know, of course, the the main thing is that you're you're talking about uh, the the visions of the the future that you were uh, you were growing up reading, 
uh, made me think of the the Simpsons clip where uh, you know where Martin uh, talks about uh, talks about the science fiction that you know that he wants people to uh, to read. We have that. As your president, I would demand a science fiction library featuring an ABC of the older words of the genre. Asimov, Mister Clark. Well, what about Ray Bradbury? I will wear this work. Thank you, and keep watching the skies. Excellent, <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the thing. You know, Bradbury was always like he. I read him. But he was always the science fiction writer that, like, your mom and dad read. You know, he was, like, acceptable, uh, in which made him less interesting, kind of. Um, and uh, there was an inherent conservatism in, in Bradbury's whole aesthetic, too. Whereas Bester, I mean, you know, come on. And Clark was a technologist, but he was such a good one. Uh, and Asimov, I think I, I write in the piece about the fact that I sent a fan letter and a short story to Isaac Asimov when I was 12 and um, ever diplomatic, but refusing to be dishonest. He wrote me a card back saying, uh, nice to hear from you, Richard. Keep writing. Uh, no, no compliments whatsoever, which is entirely <laughs> appropriate, but... But, uh, and so, you know, it was nice of it, right? Yeah. And, and something, you know, uh, in, in the, uh, beginning of the essay is something that you point out is that's, that's really interesting and kind of revealing in terms of both, you know, the larger theme about the actual, um, you know, what's different about the world that produced these dystopias and the world that we're living in. And, uh, and also, uh, you know, the dystopias themselves is that so much of the stuff that you were writing, that you were reading, that was, you know, like what you're mostly concerned with in this piece, not, you know, uh, stories about, you know, galactic empires in the year 3000 or anything like that. But, um, right. you know, but these dystopian projections of of the future were set about 40 years in the future. Which, uh, which, which makes sense maybe in a different way than, um, than it would now, right? Because if you, you you know, if you think about the sort of scale of change between like, you know, 1910 and 1950, you could set a story in 1950 and 1990. And it's like, yeah, it kind of sky's the limit about, you know, what you can get people to suspend disbelief about. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and it was it seemed to just be constantly accelerating, so that yeah, the difference between 1910 and 1950 was astonishing. The difference between 1950 and 1965 was mind-boggling, and so it was logical to assume that this would keep accelerating ad infinitum, uh, kind of Moore's law, if you know Moore's law and computing. But but it just applied to all technology. You know, I remember going to the World's Fair 1965 uh, in New York and uh, Futurama was the big uh, General Motors display of the city of the future, meaning like 1990. And, you know, domed city and, you know, elevated tracks and uh, everybody just assumed that infrastructure would be 
accelerating at the same rate as every other form of technology. Whereas, you know, we accelerated in the, you know, in the silicon chip uh, iPhone sense, but, but uh, did not at all. You know, infrastructure requires people, people requires laborers, and, you know, that didn't fit into the low-budget dystopia that we wound up with. Uh, speaking of dystopias, I think I just banned a robot from our chat that was trying to sell mushrooms and and guns and armaments. I think in our that I had to I had to ban and I couldn't. I was trying to figure out while you were talking if it was a person or a robot. Uh, so uh, I didn't. It, it only occurred to me after I banned them that there's a, that was yeah. That, 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 how about, how, you didn't do a Turing <laughs> test first. <laughs> I, if I, yeah. I were an insidious robot entity, I would of course try to sell hallucinogens and weapons <laughs> to every human I could reach. <laughs> and the results, I dare say, would be predictable. Yes. <laughs> That's the story I want to read. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. Yeah, you know, hallucinate. You know, it's real. It's funny. I should have put this in this story, but uh, it's it's not an accident that the generation raised on uh, this futurism and technology, meaning the kids of my generation and really older too, uh, also became the generation that pioneered psychedelics. Because, I mean, I remember, I really should have put this in the story. I remember I was at, I guess I would have been about 12 years old. I was watching The Outer Limits, one of those shows with my friend Robbie uh, over at Robbie's house. And there was an episode about a Timothy Leary character. And he's promoting psychedelics. And, you know, I knew vaguely who Timothy, you know, he's very famous, I vaguely knew who he was. And, uh, he said, well, you know, when you take this drug, it's like you're changing channels on reality and watching a different reality. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I mean, this was like there was something about these various alternative realities that seemed to sort of pave the way. And then there was all the rhetoric about you know, exploring inner space and all that, you know. So I think yeah, there's I think a connection Dick too. Like. What's that? Philip K. Dick in that era. Philip Philip K. Dick in that era also kind of uh, was you know just starting to write about that kind of uh, uh, you know like taking uh, drugs to kind of medicate yourself. Uh, big part of what do androids dream of? Electric sheep and um, was it the three stigmatas of um, Albert Eldritch? Yeah. Albert yes. Eldritch. Yeah, uh, yeah. But of course, he was also taking drugs to write those novels um, massively. Um, so. And he was amazing. I mean, amazing imagination, and and uh, I mean, he wrote the books like someone who was really high. Uh, yeah, so okay. I mean, like, he was also like disassociated in time, according to him, and uh, but living life as yeah. a uh, first century Christian, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, so he that's, has a, that's a massive book about that. Yeah, yeah. Now, but, oh, yeah. So actually, that would have been great for this article too, because. He yeah. thought he was a first century Christian and that this was his dystopic hallucination, that none of this was true, that he really was in the first century imagining yeah, all the, this as a kind of hell. Yeah, the empire never ended, that the that uh, that 
uh, real time stopped in 70 C when uh, the Romans destroyed the temple and that uh, everything since then is just an illusion uh, that so the, the real first century Christians are trying to make contact with them. But, but I do think that one of the, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about Philip K. Dick here is that, you know, he's, he's not Timothy Leary uh, in the sense that, uh, that, yeah, I mean, like he certainly took a lot of drugs and like, and he, he writes about them, but it's, it's never like an advertisement <laughs> for, uh, for them. Right. It's, it's always, it's, you know, it's always a pretty grim view of it. Right. And, and even yeah. Vallis, that novel we were talking about, uh, part of what makes it an interesting book is that it's not just like, Hey, here's the crazy stuff that I think it's uh, him sitting around for much of the book, uh, talking to uh, the uh, talking to these versions, like these characters, David and Kevin, who I think are based on uh, two other writers that I knew, Tim Powers and KW Jader, uh, and uh, and having them, you know, and having both of them in different ways be like extremely skeptical and extremely funny uh, about all of the the crazy stuff that he's saying, right? You know, like I think it would have been a way less interested book if it were just like, oh yeah, here's the truth. Uh, come, you know, come join right. my new religion. Well, the other thing to, to understand about Philip K. Dick, and I mean, I'm a huge fan, but, you know, is the nature of the drugs he was taking. He took a, a lot of speed and, you know, to crank these books out real fast because they didn't pay very well. So, A, it affected his writing. Like, Time Out of Joint is such a brilliant premise, but kind of, you know, falls apart by the end. Uh, but also that stuff makes you paranoid. So so the combination of the sort of hallucinogenic quality and the paranoia, it seems to be part of the sort of cocktail of, of uh, you know, psychic phenomena that was Philip K. Dick, right? I'm hallucinogenic, but but utterly paranoid. And so and it was great, you know, but that's, that's my theory anyway, as to how he, get, uh, what shaped that. Yeah. I mean, the, um, you know, Scatter Darkly, which is the one Philip K. Dick book uh, that was turned into a movie that's actually similar to the source material uh, is, right. um, you know, is, is all about this uh, incredibly, you know, bleak vision of, uh, the uh, of you know people being you know which apparently uh, comes from you know from a uh, when he was in rehab uh, that which he had like he was he had a breakdown while he was in uh, Vancouver and uh, the the rehab he could find was was for heroin addicts which is like you know pretty clearly the one thing he had not ever actually done no. uh you know i mean you know the, you know he i mean what he was actually doing was like you know uh milkshakes blended with you know speed right you know and uh like and, and he looked like it right so he did right. not look like heroin addict but he managed to talk himself into it and like while he was in the 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 clinic he he had this sort of paranoid vision of the what if the um uh the the people who were running the clinic were also manufacturing drugs in order to like drum up uh, more business uh, for the, uh, for the rehab clinic, you know? So, so yeah, I mean, that, he that is, foresaw the, he foresaw the opioid em- epidemic. He was ha- hallucinating <laughs> the Sackler family. Uh, <laughs> no, 
<laughs> of course, not real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'd be too horrible. Couldn't happen. Uh, but... Right, right. I mean, that's too dystopian for anybody. You know, they, but then, you, you know, you contrast his sort of uh, paranoid speed visions with a novel like Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein, which is, right. uh, you know, in many ways. Yeah, that, that really of, is, here's the truth, come join my new religion. Right. And very psychedelic, very, uh, you know, let's all get high together and 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 this is the way it's going to be. And, um, uh, but also very, as was characteristic of Heinlein's politics, very individualistic, right? I mean, it was an individualized form of salvation. It was, uh, you know... Uh, built around a charismatic character and it was retreat into your own world kind of uh, all the kids I knew in high school, you know, the nerd crowd of my sci-fi friends and myself, the libertarian inclined ones were the ones who really loved that book. I mean, I did too. I I was magnetized by, but the libertarians saw something of, of themselves in that that I think the rest of us didn't like the same kids who said you've got to read Atlas Shrugged it is the best book ever written in the history of humanity were the kids who really got into Stranger in a Strange Land and in an odd way kind of I was thinking about that before we started talking yeah. this evening because because uh you know this talking to someone today about the, the intersection between uh COVID denialism and the wellness yoga movement, right? And in a sense, it almost prefigures that in a, in, in, in a, in a funny way. Yeah, and, and there is something very strange about the fact that Heinlein wrote Stranger to Strange Land, which is, yes, very individualistic, but it's, it's, it's also very, you know, psychedelic, free-lovey, etc. Yeah. Uh, but you know, look, this is the same guy who wrote Starship Troopers, and there, there is, there is something, um, you know, there is something very strange going on there. I think it is ultimately compatible, but I mean, like, it sort of doesn't look like it on the surface. Yeah, right. I mean, the one right. argument about timeline though is like he he comes up with like ideas of how society's going to look in the future, and then explores that devoid of whatever his po- actual politics are. So you know, there there is there is a weirdness of. Uh, uh, incongruity of, of various worlds that he creates, uh, trying to understand like his his politics. Yeah, maybe. Although I, mean, I, I, I also, oh, sorry, you were saying it, Richard. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, so maybe right. Although though, I do wonder if you know, even though on the one hand, the sort of um, ode to militarism feels like a weird. Um, you know, seems like feels like a weird fit. You know, with the stranger to strange land stuff. Uh, ultimately, you know, I think if you just kind of assume, I think if you just kind of straightforwardly read him as a, um, you know, as, as a libertarian with, uh, with a hawkish foreign policy, right? Like that, that might actually be like, uh, that might actually be enough to take in all of it, right? There's the, the, uh, the mood is a harsh mistress, right? That's the sort of really explicit libertarianism book. And then, um, and then, uh, stranger to strange land, uh, and, uh, and then, yeah, even, even starship troopers that, uh, which is like, look, there's no, uh, 
you know, there's nothing socially uptight going on in Starship Troopers. In fact, you know, yeah. there's quite the opposite, right? You know, but uh, right. it's just right. that it, it's just that it's very important that everybody, you know, join the army and kill the commies. I mean, the the bugs. Right. The the non-human uh, enemy. The uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's right, and I think that uh, you know it fits with my working definition in recent years of a libertarian and i'm not talking about left libertarianism or sure. but a, a libertarian is a conservative who likes to get high you know i mean that's you know uh, he was precursor of that too so he was prophetic in a way and as you know in the in the article i wrote i quote a story i was fascinated with as a kid by heinlein called the roads must roll where in 1943 or so he was predicting that by the 1950s we wouldn't have cars, we would have super fast conveyor belts, and everybody would transport themselves this way, and there were restaurants on them, and and he goes into everything about how it would work. But the bad guys are the all-powerful union leaders who threaten to shut the roads down. It's like and the most science fiction thing. By the 1960s, the union leaders are threatening to strike and paralyze the country. And so, it's, you know, I think I said that the most science fictiony thing about it was the idea that uh, in late 1960s America, unions would have the ability to shut down anything because they were already being uh, uh, deplatformed uh, de by then. So, uh, but that was, you know, that typical of his biases. And, uh, the stereotype of the union bosses, thug, and all of that stuff. So. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. That and that was a very like I, I'm not. I actually looked for that story a little bit after I after I read your essay to see if I could find it anywhere online. And you know, my my Google foo wasn't sufficient to uh, the task. But um, but the like the actual the actual science fiction setup of it seemed kind of funny too. I was trying to understand that you said there was something about how the cars in this version of the future could go less than sixty miles an hour. Right, that was one of his. One of his uh, yeah, that that it was against the law for a car on a highway to travel any slower than sixty-five or seventy-five miles an hour, but you could go as fast as you wanted, which is the ultimate, of course, libertarian fantasy um but you know he thought it through like okay if you had these super fast roads that always moved how would you get super fast right because how would you would have to like get on it at some point it was super fast you'd be torn in two so he explains all of that how there are series of conveyor belts each is slightly faster than another so you step on a slow one and then move to a faster one. By the time you get to the 10th one, you're going 100 miles an hour, and there's a faster one, and then you eat at Joe's and, and all of that. So, That's part of uh, Asimov's world building, too, in the, uh, what is it, the, cave, the Caves of Steel, the robot detective right. trilogy, where the detective is on those fast-moving walkways. But I think in more of a typical Asimov style, he just tells you that they're there, then there's like a chase scene on it, like like later in the book. He doesn't spend time being like, well, you know, there's a slow one that goes to a faster right. one. Like, you know, he, does, right, right. He, he just he just lets you know, and then you and then you know, it comes back in a satisfying way later. 
it's, yeah, it and, and, uh, and I loved all of his books growing up. Obviously, I wrote to him. I mean, you know, but uh, I, would, I was a big fan of all of his books uh, growing up and his short stories. Um, and Arthur C. Clarke wrote some great short stories. Ray Bradbury wrote uh, several really good short stories, but some of them, to say they didn't age well, is putting it mildly, insanely racist. Uh, a couple of them, like mind-boggling racist. Um, and uh, some of them are just not that good. But, you know, uh, a few of them are really good. Our, our classics, I'll give them that. Uh, I was uh, watching a musician once talking about uh, listening to the Ray Bradbury collection on uh, like as an audio book. And it was read by Ray Bradbury. And he's like, I couldn't take it seriously. It was just this old Jewish man going, and the Martians come down and they started invading us. And <laughs> yeah, he wasn't Jewish, though. He was uh, Midwestern, um, you know, like Methodist or something. But maybe he sounded Jewish. I don't know. He, I, I'm, uh, Try to remember a joke from 20 years ago. So, <laughs> uh, You know, he was a liberal icon for a while after he wrote Fahrenheit 451. And then he turned out to be even more of a right-wing curmudgeon later. But uh, I think he had pretty progressive positions early on. Asimov was probably a socialist. Um, so you, you know what I didn't get to write about? And I, I, there just wasn't space in this article, but I found uh, a primitive, a, a paper equivalent of what would we would have called a bulletin board in the 90s, right, online bulletin board for uh, science fiction writers. And a number of the famous ones were in it and talking and they were trying to form a guild or union and organize uh, Fascinating. I mean, I, I got to go back and, and dive into it again. But some of the political differences came out and you had real leftists in there. I mean, real socialists, Marxists. And then you had, you know, the Heinlein types. So it's kind of interesting uh, uh, historic, his, historical document. Yeah, there, there might be something yeah. interesting there about the way that this appeals to people who in one direction or another, uh, you know, th you know, like think that society as, as it exists is, uh, is a problem, right. You know, so, so you might like, there might be a reason why, you know, even so many of the right wingers who, uh, who write science fiction aren't just normal, boring right wingers. They're like insane libertarians who want to privatize the sidewalks. Cause at least it's like some kind right. of, you know, fundamental dissatisfaction right. with society as it is. Right. The, uh, um, I, I tweeted something sarcastically about, there was a online conference, uh, libertarian conference I was listening to. I didn't tweet about it. I wrote about it in the blog three quarks daily, but uh, someone said, well, you could create markets in green lights that when cars came to an intersection, they could electronically bid on who gets the green light first. So I wrote a sarcastic piece about it. And Tyler Cohen, the libertarian blogger, uh, economist blogger, like reposted it as like a serious endorsement. Um, and, you know, I've written about Tyler Cohen. He's a smart guy, but I mean, his craziness 
blinded into the fact, because I think I said something like, that could work great. You could just find an expensive car and follow it. And then they'd pay for the green light and you'd go right through. You know, I mean, I was just like <laughs> making fun of the idea. Uh, but markets and everything. He has a little segment, markets and everything. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, this is, uh, which, yeah, I mean, certainly, God, I remember there's some, uh, you know, Heinlein novel where they're making a big point of uh, how there's this, I don't know if it's the moon or some other planet, but, you know, you, you need breathable air and it's being bought or sold. And like, what, and, and what if the characters who's like the, you know, who's the, uh, you know, it's like the dumb socialist who doesn't understand is like, oh, this is horrible. How can you sell that? Right. This is like, surely everybody has a right to it. And that's, that's just kind of treated as like, oh, look at, you know, look at how ridiculous it is that this guy doesn't understand that, you know, there's no free lunch and, you know, you have to, you know, like they're like, of course, of course you're going to sell the air. That's fine. Right. Well, you know, that's why really Ayn Rand was uh, a science fiction writer because she was so, in a way, because she was so detached from reality, it was so fantastical uh, and grotesque what she wrote. But, but uh, you know, you raised something, an interesting point, Ben, about, you know, people who are into science fiction and uh, have huge ideas, are more likely to have huge ideas about remaking the world, right? Remaking society, redesigning the world. The left, I think, has lost a lot of that that is really now the purview of of the some of the old right and some of the new right certainly the the tech overlord right i mean they are convinced they're going to remake the world in their image they're, they're doing pretty well at it unfortunately but um the left has stopped thinking big you know i mean this is a major complaint of mine maybe we need to distribute uh, our present company accepted, of course, but I mean, maybe we start have to start, you know, distributing science fiction to people. I think that's why people resonated so much. Kim Stanley Robbins, you know, I've interviewed him several times. Uh, great, you know, um, but it wasn't until he wrote Ministry for the Future then I couldn't reach him anymore. But but uh, he became then he became a kind of oracular figure for the left a little bit, you know, you know, even like people like Ezra Klein or whatever uh, would uh, wanted to interview him because he was, uh, you know, thinking in big terms about it, which he'd been doing for a long time. But, but I think that was his breakthrough book to more of a mainstream, but it seems more like the exception than the rule. It's the right wingers that are having the, uh, you know, the big, and they have transformed society in the last since Reagan in ways that the left can't imagine. So. Oh, uh, yes. Our friend Jason uh, has a hundred peso uh, super chat as uh, the asking, what kind of amp is RJ played through? It's a, uh, it's a Fender DeVille. It's like a high powered uh, Fender Deluxe reverb basically. And I have a 52 custom shop Telecaster and a Strat, and a 1969 uh, Gibson 550, which people mistake for, uh, I'm sorry, 
450, which people mistake for a 355, the Clapton, BB King, and then a bunch of other instruments. I thought Jason oh. paid us a hundred bucks <laughs> to get that information. It's no, pay, no, so no. it's pace estimate. Okay, he's a no, yeah, yeah. I forgot. He's... No, I was going to yeah. split it with four ways. No, 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 no. Ben, yeah, ben would keep ninety nine percent of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is that? But mean? Um, yeah, I think is that a, another kind pesos, of pesos, right? It's a, it's yeah, MX pesos. Mexico, yeah. Oh, 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 okay, sure. But yeah, the yeah. Uh, the uh, Ministry for the Future was on Obama's list of best books of the of, of, of yes, of the, year. the best uh, books that he that his focus group told him to pretend to have read. Yeah, yeah, because exactly. I, I, like his playlist. Uh, same deal. It's funny because Stan Robinson is a straight up so a Marxist. I mean, he's a flat out Marxist, and he wrote a book called Red Moon. I interviewed him about it's set in the future where China is like running everything, right? And and uh, you know, an American Stanley point. Robinson book that has like a a background detail is this something called the Mondragon Convention that like instituted universal workers' control of production. Uh, it sounds like sounds like him. I, uh, I, 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 think, actually, I think that's from a Stanley Robinson book, but yeah. He's the guy who, who's like Heinlein. He wants to give you like the whole history of how everything happened. On one of the times he came on my show, I imitated for him what he would have sounded like like in 1870 if he was like describing a taxi cab ride. You know, which is a because everything is like the opposite of what an Asimov is like. And then the vehicle operator pressed down on a flat plane, which caused a flood of gasoline, uh, flammable liquid. To, you know, it's okay. But, my, uh, my, uh, yeah, yeah. When my girlfriend's <laughs> trying to read, she's 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 working through Red Mars, and she said she loved it. But now there's like a hundred pages that just seems. Like a science, oh. like a description of a science yeah, yeah. experiment. There's like, there's like yeah. pages of like t- talking about pH balance of soil. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And but the China, the Red Moon thing. What was interesting about it is, uh, you know, I don't want to misquote him, but but I said, wow, you know, kind of an assumption in this book that uh, China is going to dominate the future. He said, well, I'm rooting for them. You know, basically, you know. I, I, so uh, it's funny that he's on Obama's list, but Obama, because now, you know. Um, yeah, Obama has, has I, I, I feel, I guess I can't know, but I feel arbitrarily very certain that Obama's read very little of what's on his list and very little of what's on his playlist has actually had like more than one play on his Spotify, uh, et cetera. Yeah, uh, and Obama. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not an Obama fan, but I will sure. say that when he was running for president, uh, I read a, a, series, a Q&A he did with some students. Well, one of them started to mention Margaret Mead. And, and when she did, he said, oh, oh, I'm hip to Margaret Mead. And <laughs> I, thought, I thought, well, it would be interesting to have a president who says things like, I'm hip to Margaret Mead. But in the end, it wasn't that interesting. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of neoliberal status quo and uh, and yeah. like actually, it's one of the interesting things about you know probably the nicest thing I have to say about Joe Biden is that he's the first president of the last three who 
who seems to actually just want to be president. Like he doesn't seem to want to be a celebrity, right? You know, he just right. he just right. wants to do the president thing, right? Like he's not he's not releasing, you know, playlists, he's not doing he's not showing us his, you know, his uh his his like basketball bracket, you know, he's saying, you know, he's not displayed his craft beer recipes, right? Like that seemed right. to be all the stuff that, you know, that Obama really liked. And of course, um, you know, and of course Trump and- just, you know, is, is, is his own thing is, uh, so generous, you know, but, uh, but, you Although know, I kind of wish if he was, he'd, his dogs would like be mauling people at like uh, press conferences. It'd be great. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't imagine what a Joe Biden playlist would look like. I really, I would be <laughs> curious about that. Uh, yeah. Would, would there really be anything would. that was released since he graduated from high school? Right. I know. That's what I was thinking. How much is that doggy in the window or something? You know, it's, uh, the, uh, but I really talk about dystopias. The fact that oh, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen did a podcast called Renegades. I mean, that to me is hell on earth. This is like, you know, uh, I've never even listened to it, and I was suffocating from the self-satisfaction. So, you know. Yeah, as, you know, as somebody who, <laughs> fair enough, uh, <laughs> says fine playlists have a lot of royalty-free music. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like, as, as as a former long-term resident of the state of New Jersey, it makes me very sad that Bruce Springsteen uh, did that. But, uh, but in any case... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like, go, and and the fact that, um, you know, when I was like struggling to describe Trump earlier, I mean, that itself feels like something that, like, the fact that Donald Trump was president for four years, in itself, feels like something that would have been in, in like the 1990s. Forget earlier than that, right? But like in like the 80s or 90s, that feels like something that would have been in not like serious science fiction, but like, you know, an over the top, like parody, like vision of the, the future, right. That that's, uh, I mean, this is the guy, uh, who is like the butt of jokes and, uh, you know, in like the gremlins too, right. The, uh, the, the real estate developer was like a very thinly disguised version of Trump. Right. And like the, his book, I take Manhattan yeah. has the same cover art as art of the deal on it. Right. Like that, that's, that, that's right. the guy. Right. Yeah, or like idiocracy, the pre- the prequel, you know, uh, the or maybe one of those science fiction, cheap science fiction movies from the eighties or nineties, where like people wear big, glittery boots and capes, uh, yes. and he's he's like the dystopian president, my citizens, you know, I I could see that too. Like, you know, overweight. Yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> and, you know, I can see that with the yeah, hair. You know, the hair is actually science fiction. It's a tesseract. Where is that, Jake? Oh no, no, I agree that uh, we'll just be. I, I, uh, I forget what if he was actually president, but Back to the Future too. Yeah, the Biff. Yeah, Biff. 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That was who was also, I, th- I think, acknowledged to be Trump like, party, right? inspired by Donald Trump. Yeah, like the not the he? original Biff, maybe, but the the but the President Biff. The back to the future Biff. Yeah. When was when was that? 
that was before Trump, well before Trump actually. Yeah, that was eighty nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the only, yeah, he's also, um, yeah, like, yeah, Donald Trump comes up a lot in uh, in movies in the eighties and nineties, uh, never in a very serious way, like in the uh, in American Psycho. Uh, there are several references to uh, to how much uh, Patrick Bateman loves and models himself on Donald Trump. That is a surprisingly good movie, actually. A, a a very good movie. You know, a, a, a quick story that <clears throat> when I was a kid, there was a TV show called Laughing. I don't know if you yeah. heard Ronan Martin's Laughing. And when Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California, everybody just thought it was absurd. I should have put this in the piece too. Everybody thought it was so ridiculous, right? It was just a flash in the pan. You know, this washed up B-movie actor gets elected governor of California. Laughing used to have a bit every week they called uh, News 20 Years From Today. The headline's 20 Years From Today. And um, I went and did this uh this uh, multilateral aid work in when communism was collapsing. I went to Europe. Well, I actually went before then uh, when it was when Hungary was still communist. I was there in 1988, and they didn't have any uh, channels on the hotel TV except the state channel and something that ran American reruns. And so it's 1988, and I'm watching these American reruns watching Laugh-In and from 1968. And it today, in, in new headlines, uh, 20 years from today, President Ronald Reagan announced big laugh from the whole audience. And Ronald Reagan was president. <laughs> Talk about, you know, <laughs> alternate timelines, you know. Yeah, which is all, which is also a joke in uh, in Back to the Future. They uh, that uh, Marty is uh, in 1955. Uh, Doc Brown asks him who's president, and uh, he and he says uh, Ronald Reagan. And he and Doc Brown laughs and said, uh, "Actually, I, I can't even properly Jane Wyman, right?" So he says, "I suppose Jane Wyman is the first lady," uh, which is oh, which apparently, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Apparently yeah. when Reagan, uh, Reagan and his um, like Reagan and his staff were like watching that movie at Camp David. And that was like a very uncomfortable moment, you know, cause the, uh, the reference to, uh, to Reagan's first oh, wife. <laughs> especially if Nancy was there. Yeah. 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 I'm not Nancy Reagan. That was weird. But Ron uh-huh. was already. Yes, I, I did. I, and I'm at the queen of England too, but uh Nancy Reagan, because it was part of a, a theater group that put on a performance at uh, UCLA Hospital, which is the, became the Ronald Reagan Medical Center. So she came to this event. She came backstage and thanked us. And that seemed nice enough, I guess. Uh, I don't have any, I mean, my Queen story is better, but my Nancy Reagan story is not that good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so in, in the, uh, there actually is a reference in your essay, uh, for people who haven't read it to, uh, to, to Nancy Reagan because of a, um, some sort of, uh, religious themed science fiction movie that, uh, that she was in. Right. The next voice you hear, which, um, 
even though my mother was an atheist, she loved that film. Uh, and she was, uh, Nancy Davis was the female lead and uh, very sentimental and uh, God starts speaking to humanity through all the radios in the world. I've never, you know, I should have questioned more why he needed a medium of transmission, you know, as opposed to direct communication, but it, it didn't occur to me. Yeah, that's, uh, the, that's the, the, the end of Star Trek V question. What does God need with the starship? It's the the same thing, right? It's like, it's like, right, well, exactly. I mean, it's like, what, <laughs> you, you need like a cone and a magnet, and but um, maybe so that people. On the other hand, you know, people say that those are the burning bushes of the uh, you know, 1950s. So there you go. Yeah, so, I guess so. And, um, so you never hear the voice of God, but you hear people reacting and you see them waiting for the next. But my favorite thing about it was, was the ending, uh, which was, you see a quote from the Bible, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son or some quote of that kind. Then it fades away. And then you see a Dory Sherry production. It's like, yeah, this is Hollywood. You get better billing than God, literally. Yeah. So, uh, but that was science fiction of a kind, you know, I mean, it was, there was a whole strain of theological science fiction. You know, there's another science fiction movie where the hero sacrifices himself by going into a lower space, like, you know, just above the stratosphere but he survives because there's divine intervention. You know, I mean, there uh, it was people were kind of transitioning, I think, between theology and science at that point. And, uh, there was a little bit of navigating the li- liminal space between, you know, God and and uh, and physics. So. Well, and even Arthur C. Clarke, you were talking about earlier, I mean, like he's constantly, you know, in a very different direction, right? Is is constantly playing with that um that space, right? Uh between, you know, between yeah. uh sci- science and science fiction and uh and theology. Like he has ninety nine um, names of God. Yeah. Ninety nine uh, games of games of God or whatever it's called, yeah. 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 I think it's the 99 something. Yeah. It's 99 million or something names of God. So it's, they have a, uh, it's the people, uh, there's like a, you know, there's a religious sect that's, you know, paid these people to, to have like extrapolate every possible name of God. Cause they've decided that this is like the mission of humanity to, to do this. And, uh, and the, the world will end once they've done it. And, uh, and so they, they, you know, it's a very simple story, but it's like a, you know, they finish, they finish calculating. They can start to see the stars fading out of the sky. Right. right, they, uh, right, right, this, right But right. like, conversely, he has a story called uh, the star, which is uh, a kind of, uh, I don't know. It's like, a, this is sort of a, um, this is sort of a science fiction story played with religion in a way that like Richard Dawkins could love. Uh, cause, uh, it's, it's about this, uh, like a priest or a monk, you know, who's, who's on some sort of galactic, you know, a scientific discovery mission. And, you know, and he comes to the, the ruins of this planet that was, uh, destroyed, you know, all the life there was destroyed when the star went supernova near there. And, um, 
And so the priest is experiencing this crisis of faith, which he, uh, which he explains, you know, over the course of, you know, the very short story by saying that it's, it's not that the, um, it's not the problem of evil per se, right? It's not that the, like that there was all this immense suffering and why would a just God allow this and all that? Cause you know, that's a sort of familiar problem, right? You know, he, right. that's, that's not going to throw him. Uh, it's the fact that he's done the astronomical calculations about exactly when this particular star going supernova would have been visible from uh, Bethlehem. You know, rich civilization that was destroyed for that, you know, so that's, you know, like that's a very different, you know. Oh, um, right. That's good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ray Bradbury had a story about a, a minister, a priest or a pastor who goes to minister to the Martians in the Martian Chronicles and tell, but then he discovers they're worshiping God in their own way, you know, like a glowing orb or something. Uh, so that wasn't a very interesting story, but it is interesting. Yeah. They were wrestling with the God question because it was a lot more uh, vivid in society then than now. Now it's there's this polarization of uh, evangelical belief uh, politicized, and then sort of people who just practice their religion and in a secular world and are fine with that. And then non-believers, and it's, it's not something that I really see science fiction struggling with a lot. Maybe it is, and I've just missed it. But I don't think so. I mean, which is which is interesting in itself that they have a that like even you know like when some of this stuff was being written, even if you were a non-believer, um, you know, Christianity in particular, right? You know, was was sort of emotionally vivid to you in a way that it right. might not exactly. Be, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was a, actually one of my favorite Ray Bradbury stories, not explicitly religious, but some astronauts who get blown apart, their ship gets blown apart in orbit, and one is being is drifting out to deep space, and another is drifting into the sun, and one guy is going to fall back to Earth, and he's depressed, and he's had a miserable life, and his kids hate him, and his wife hates him, and he's, as he's falling to Earth... He's thinking, you know, I've never done a decent thing for any other human being. This has been a worthless life. And then he falls, and then a mother and child are looking up at the sky, and the boy says, look, a falling star. And the mother says, make a wish, son. And I thought that was a sweet story, you know. I mean, it's sort of theological, but, you know, just sentimental. I have a soft spot (laughs) for stories like that. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Well, uh, to, to go back to, um, you know, the, the dystopias, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, when you, you know, when you're sort of doing the, the original, um, uh, you know, the original sort of run through of all the 40 years hence, uh, uh, dystopian fiction, uh, you talk about uh, "Make Room, Make Room" by Harry Harrison, which is a a, a novel. Uh, I think we've got a graphic for that. Uh, that yeah. uh, that that I think probably not a lot of people read now, but uh, but probably a lot of people either have seen or even if they haven't seen it, they're just kind of aware of because in that ambient way, you kind of can't help being uh, the uh, the the movie uh, Soylent Green. Right, 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 and uh, you know at that point. 
Uh, Paul Ehrlich was talking, uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich was talking about the population bomb. Uh, there's a belief that the planet would be wildly overpopulated. We wouldn't have enough food for everyone. Uh, New York City was uh, a hellhole uh, and, uh, you know, had not yet experienced its, uh, its revival as a theme park for uh, hedge funders. And um, so, you know, people were, were uh, living in cramped conditions there. He just extrapolated all of that. A few years into the future, I forget if it was in the 1990s or whatever. I, I think I wrote in the article, but but uh, that there wouldn't be enough food and that uh, people wouldn't have enough places to live and would be sharing, uh, in rooms and alternating, taking shifts in bed, uh, the same bed and all that. And uh, of course, that led to the movie Soil and Green. Uh, and I assume everybody on the planet now knows which was so obvious when it came out and you watch <laughs> silent green and like five minutes into it, you know, I turned to my friends, you know, it's people. Uh, <laughs> it was just like the most, and then the big climactic ending, it's people. Silent green is people. Uh, and Saturday Night Live had their satire, silent green too. It's still people. The, uh, <laughs> They had a bunch of sequels too. Like, like my favorite was Soylent White, where they just had like Rob Schneider going, "Boy, we sure have a lot of paperwork in the future." And then you just see uh, <laughs> Phil Hartman dressed up as uh, Charles Nelson going, "It's people, Soylent White is people." Yeah, it, it's um, it's kind of amazing if you. I mean, I've, I have to say, my experience in that movie is that. I've obviously heard the phrase Soylent greatest people so many times uh, just from references right. to it that, uh, that I kind of spent the entire movie waiting for them to say it. And it's like, Oh, they say it in like the last five seconds. And right. <laughs> it's, it's the literal ending. It's like uh ending of the original planet of the apes, you know, they, the, they did it. The damn fools, they blew it up or whatever he says, which Charlton Madison says at the end. That's a whole movie, you know what I mean? It's, uh, the apes are embarrassing, and the special effects are terrible, you know. The, uh, the, the new series are far better. The new Planet of the Apes series is infinitely better. And, of course, the politics are way better, too. Yeah, you know, well, in fact, are, as, as I recall, totally Sheldon... the apes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and if, if I'm not getting this right, right, uh... A very old Charles Heston was in the first one of those, uh, playing um, surely the role he was born to play, which was a dying ape who worships a gun. Uh, I don't remember that, but that sounds, uh, yeah, yeah. A dying ape who worships a gun, a typecasting, you could say, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, but the new ones, they're pretty yeah. good. Yeah, and, and it is definitely, uh, I remember, um, I remember Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, watching that. And the kid's like, oh, yeah, right. I mean, look, fair enough. I mean, that's like, I'm, I'm not happy about the, you know, apes, you know, this at the beginning, you know, at the end of the progression that we're seeing the start off of the movie. I'm not, I'm not happy about the apes overrunning and enslaving humanity. But I mean, like, you know, if we didn't want that to happen, we really should have been nicer to the apes, you know, <laughs> like, uh, is what I got out of that movie. We did have a comeback. So, yeah. Well, but, you know, of course, I would root not for the apes in the original series, but when they rebel, 
in the new series. It's like naturally my sympathy was with the revolutionaries, just as watching Black Panther, uh, Killmonger, uh, the supposed villain, Michael B. Jordan, was obviously the more sympathetic character, obviously had it right. I mean, really royalty in the 21st century, get out of here. You know, I mean, you need a revolutionary socialist path. We don't need this. Well, and this is really, this really does connect to something you said in the essay because, uh, you know, Wakanda is such an extreme example of this, right? That you say that, you know, reflected back on the science fiction that you grew up reading. But, you know, I think that's a good example of how this is, you know, clearly still the case, right? That uh, people, there was much more sort of creative imagination about, uh, you know, the technology, the, um, you know, uh, et cetera, basically everything else than there was about uh, the structure of society, right? And, exactly. and that, that is, yeah. yeah. I mean, the fact that Wakanda yeah. is is like, has this like 23rd century kind of technology, <laughs> but they're still ruled by kings with like trial by combat uh, to uh, is, right. you know, right. I, I mean, is, is they an extreme have a warrior class with, you know, spears and it's absurd, but you know, you saw that in the most far future uh, depictions too, that, you know, galactic empires, you know, so really empires, that's what you got after 20 centuries of scientific progress. And you still see it in science fiction. If you go to the science fiction section of any bookstore provided you can find a bookstore, then, you know, you'll still see, you know, Lord so-and-so's, you know, I mean, it's like, really, it's like we had the, how much of human history had like a, a, a aristocracy of that kind, maybe a thousand years at most out of uh, 50 to 100,000 <laughs> years of human society. And that's what you're going to project 500,000 years into the future. It's preposterous. You know, it's a failure of, ima- of imagination. Which is a weird thing to say about Dune. Yeah. yeah. Well, so it's a weird thing to say about Dune, a failure of imagination. Yeah. But in, in right. this dimension. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is, I mean, it's actually kind of funny. The other yes. day you're right. I, I had had somebody, um, uh, you know, DM me because they were working on a paper for a uh, for a philosophy of science class, and uh, and they were curious about what I thought about the the topic. And uh, it's about you know Karl Popper's view that uh, the thing that distinguishes science from pseudoscience is uh, falsifiability, right? There's something that would count as you know as evidence uh, against it, and whether this is you know an objection, you know, there's like an objection to to Marxism there, you know, historical materialism is unfalsifiable. And I don't think I even said this in my response to it, but something I was thinking about, I was like, no, it's totally falsifiable. Look, here here would be excellent evidence that historical materialism is false. Uh, any of that stuff coming true, right? That they have a, that like, um, or like the, the earth is visited by an alien civilization with unfathomably exact te- technology and they still practice feudalism, right? That, that would right. in fact 
show that historical materialism is false, that it's not the case that, you know, the further development of the forces of production uh, leads to uh, to changes in social form, because apparently it could develop as much as it wants. And, you know, you're still going to get the uh, social structure of medieval England. Right. Sire, the strangers are approaching, you know. Yeah, uh, right. That would, that would disprove it all right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, but uh, I mean, you don't go too much into as much into Star Trek. You do a little bit about the original series, uh, but it's interesting because Star Trek is, uh, you know, more on the utopian side of things. But actually, in some ways, probably it's not the most uh, uh, in, interested potentially in the actual machinations of the way that the you know United Federation of Planets how it go how it's like how it works, but it does kind of represent a different uh, idea of how like humanity and aliens, like how they could be governed, you know? So it's interesting that it's, I think part of why it's so enduring too, because it shows a different, shows a different way. And then I was also, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh yeah. I mean, see Star Trek came along the original Star Trek, what 66, I think at a time when like we were doing, trick-or-treat for UNICEF, right? So, uh, you know, we would go out, in the case of my brothers and I, and we would have one can trick-or-treat for UNICEF and one can plant a tree in Israel. You know, it's like now you can have one can or the other, right? You know what I mean? But international <laughs> law and, uh, you know, and uh, the uh, occupation of Palestine are incompatible. But at that time... Uh, there was this sense, this uh, tremendous idealism about the United Nations, about the idea of Federation of Nations. Of You know, there were these books that liberal parents would own the family of man, you know, with people from different cultures. There's you know, it's kind of a, uh, a beautiful ideal that in the pursuit of global power, here in the American feudal empire, we've uh, we've kind of uh, you know sa- we've kind of tossed into the into the trash can. Uh, you know we, we pay lip service to it, but uh, the U.S. government you know trots it out when it's useful to them and ignores it when it's not, and defunds the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, the Democrats, completely defund it. I mean, you know, that we sent $120 million since last October in the last five months. Now zero. Uh, so much for the, the Star Trek ideal, because really the Federation, uh, the United Federation of Planets was just an extension of the United Nations. Um, and the, the, the culture of prosperity, right, that uh, the replicator world where you could say, you know, make me uh, 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 a 1956 Buick convertible and it it could do it for you. Uh, That was part of the belief that technology would constantly improve and that the fruits of that improvement would be shared in an egalitarian fashion, like George Jetson working two hours a week at Space Loose Rockets and making enough money to support a family of four plus a robot maid and a saucer house in the sky and, and a flying rocket car. 
So on one salary, working two hours a week, because that was the logical, in a way, projection of uh, how technology was increasing productivity and productivity gains were being shared roughly equally between employers and employees. So uh, in a sense, Star Trek just took that to the next level of like, okay, well, that technology that basically takes care of all your material needs. And then, uh, you know, people will serve in Starfleet out of a sense of idealism and to expand the family of planets and, and obey the prime directive of don't interfere with their culture. You know, it, it was, a, and you notice over time that Star Trek reboots and Star Trek sequel series and so on, the sequel films got darker and darker and more uh, reflecting the times. And I noticed that I was watching one of the recent Star Treks. I don't know if this is the Picard one or I couldn't hang with any of the recent ones, but I watched some of them. Discovery, uh, one of the characters said, well, uh, how's this whole socialist, they actually use the word socialist, sharing all the products of technology thing working out or something. So they make it overt, but it was always you know, implicit. It was a very left-wing... Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, I think it was the uh, a Strange New Worlds where she said, like, she... Uh, there was the engineer who said that, like, she keeps, like, a emergency, like, shack in, like, Portland in case this whole uh, social... Right, it's her. ...doesn't right. work out, which was, which was the first time I think they ever, like, actually called it socialist. But she's a character that has been, like, living since, like... I don't know, basically for like forever. So she could have seen the development, but I think for, I think the implication is that most characters in Star Trek wouldn't even think of it as socialism per se. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. They might've also just no, not I'm mentioned kidding. it because it would be, it would have been kind well, of spicy yeah, but, to but mention it. Was, it. Yeah. Right. I, I, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, but it does, well, sure, for sure. But like, also it does seem like, yeah, maybe in that world, you don't think of it in those terms. And like, they have like a lot of, you know, I mean, certainly it's, uh, you know, in the Star Trek world, uh, you know, whatever, you know, like there, there does seem to have been some very amicable, you know, peaceful end into the Cold War. Right. You know, I've got a got a Russian guy right you know, right there. Right. This is right. Um, right. right. Exactly. Uh, well, but there's World War Th- there's World War three in, in Star Trek, though. So yeah. it took it took uh, yeah, there was a, a nuclear war and then the the war with the, uh, um, the eugenic, the eugenics, the eugenics war. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With uh, um, uh, Khan. Yeah. It took some it took some it took some calamities, which hopefully we won't have to go through. Yeah, but, the, right, but there but are definitely. Yeah. I mean, think about the fact that, well, first of all, you know, it kind of fits with my thesis a little bit in the article, which is that we were kind of expecting something really bad. You know, it was definitely a possibility. But also, think about do you think that a network TV show today could have a Russian character? I think our Russian. xenophobia is worse now than it was then. And I saw a video of the Elton John song Nikita. You, I don't know if you've ever seen that video. It's from the 1980s about a Russian. In the video, it's a Russian like model, like this beautiful woman who's a soldier, and but she really wants to be with Elton. Like, you know, okay, it's you know, it's, <laughs> that's but, how much uh, was the time. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I don't think we could, that video could be made today either. So. 
we descended into the xenophobia of the 1950s, really. Not, not yeah, I mean, my, my favorite thing after the uh, uh, right after the war in Ukraine started is um, that uh, apparently I saw this article that the like there's a international there's like a federation that regulates uh, cat shows and they and they banned uh, cats that were bred in Russia. Uh, from uh, from the competition, I, thought it, was, so I like, thought it was a breed called Russian Blue. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think what they did is I, I don't think it was just the Russian Blues. I think they they okay. banned like the you know like Russian breeds from from the cat shows, which I'm sure really showed Putin you know that uh, that like he you know it's like okay, got to so back off now. Right? Right. <laughs> you know, now now the cats are being you know uh, right. the cats and are being unfairly hurt. Too, buddy. Right. You're yeah really. <laughs> It's so absurd. Yeah, the, the 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 it was always considered uh, necessary to extend a you know n- even Nixon and Khrushchev the kitchen cabinet debate right. I mean you had to have some sort of you had to shake hands. Uh, I just read recently talking about alternative timelines that Kennedy JFK and I'm not you know I mean he's a cold warrior. I don't romanticize JFK, but that he was pushing pretty hard to turn the uh, moon project, the Apollo project, into a joint U.S.-Soviet mission. And he was doing it because he didn't want to spend the money, partially, because uh, he thought it was an expensive project, uh, but also as a kind of gesture. So there was negotiation going on with Khrushchev, apparently, uh, legitimately, authenticated when he died, and Johnson dropped it. So who knows if the negotiations would have succeeded. But can you imagine if Biden said, well, you know, I'm thinking of doing a joint space project with Putin. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and that was supposed to, you know, we were on the brink of, considered to be on the brink of nuclear war then. So, Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, now to go full circle to some of what we were talking about earlier, uh, we, we just, you know, now we've got private uh, moon landings uh that's uh rather than the the public kind and that really goes that really speaks to that decline in utopian imagination uh that you were talking about before right that's uh that um you know i i have as much as i uh extremely much dislike these kinds of um like billionaire tech oligarchs who you know grew up reading Heinlein and sort of feel like their Heinlein character is like Elon Musk or Peter Thiel. Right. Uh they're they're not wrong when they say like, you know, I think that was the the Peter Thiel catchphrase, you know, that they we were promised flying cars and we got, you know, uh 280 characters. Um that, you know, that there, there is something about the sort of disconnect between uh, this kind of uh, like really ambitious techno futurism and, and the the sort of technological development that you're supposed to get excited about, uh, you know, right, right now. Right. And, and that is something that, that I feel like a lot of people on the left to some extent have, have seated, you know, that there, there just isn't, um, you know, like I, I, I mean, if anything, 
you know, I see a lot of people who think that the sort of way to deal with climate crisis isn't by leaning into figuring out amazing green technology, but by, you know, sort of scaling back uh, that, you know, like some kind of civilizational eco austerity. And, you know, and, and, and certainly the idea that like, yeah, look, we should we should actually, you know, we should have uh Damn it, we should have flying cars, right? The uh we we should uh you know, we should, you know, we should colonize the moon, but just not like private corporations making looter company towns, you know, but uh but right. the actual we the US government gave billions and billions of dollars to and continues to to SpaceX and these other companies. We we privatize what it's like pharma research, right? We pri- we do the research. We subsidize it and then turn it over to the private sector to abuse. But, you know, there's a way to do We don't need flying cars, uh, which would probably, I don't think anybody's figured out a way not to make them absurdly energy intensive, fossil fuel intensive, not to mention the navigation problem. I'll I'll negotiate away the flying cars if you at least give me some nice high speed trains. I mean, okay, how about like electric powered vans that run through everybody's neighborhood every two minutes. So you can go wherever you want to go without owning a car and have a small social experience at the same time. And it's run by the government. And how about putting our technology in that instead of uh, this ludicrous, uh, you know, fantasy of flying cars. So what, you know I mean? Where you got to go so fast, you know? I mean, uh, that's where I think the the technology, and I love technology, but that's where I mm. think the technological imagination has to be matched by the sociological imagination. And that's where we fall down. I, I, I have a question, actually, because uh, in the article, you talk about how of all the dystopias we could, we kind of could have gotten, we didn't or futures were kind of in this like maybe boring dystopia or correct me if I'm wrong. I'm kind of paraphrasing, uh, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think, because in some ways it is underwhelming because, you know, we don't have these like flying cars, but in other ways I do feel like the world just all because of like the internet basically has been completely remade almost as almost as drastically as some of the most extreme uh, science fiction you know, either dystopias or utopias or whatever. But I'm curious, do you feel like, oh, I was really expecting from all of these movies that the world would, like, that the future would be, uh, you know, way more uh, extremely remade than it is? Like, does it feel underwhelming to you or does it feel like kind of, because like, yeah. even, even to me, it feels like a little bit of like a like a shock thinking about where we are with like the internet, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I use the phrase low-budget dystopia a couple times, too, that this is the one, you know, where you don't have, uh, you know, enough money to, like, build the futuristic cities and the spaceships and the cars. So you have some guy dressed all in black with, you know, something like this in his pocket, you know, a, a phone, and and it lights up, and that's it. That's what you get. That's what you got. I went to a science fiction movie. I got a box that lights up, you know. So in that sense, it's anticlimactic. But the other thing is, uh, you know, because we had a failure of sociological imagination, we weren't able to imagine something like this. And it would be hard to depict in a movie because it's really a change in cognition, 
in attention, in the flow of information, and it's constantly changing. And, um, and we don't even have the imagination to fully grasp it. You're right. I mean, that, that it's dramatically different from what we expected. And, you know, in another piece I wrote, I wrote about my hometown of Utica, New York, going there, hadn't been there in 40 years, and which is where I saw a lot of these movies. And, and uh, you know, it never would have occurred to me I'd have a little thing in my pocket that connected me to all of humanity instantaneous, virtually instantaneously and virtually all of humanity's knowledge. Um, so that's a big deal. But no, but I forgot to say, and it also manipulates my behavior and my use of the time in order to aggregate more data for itself, you know, so, which is a real dystopia. Uh, I actually have an article coming out about that in current affairs too. Uh, if I can get my dear editor to, uh, to uh, but we all deal with that. But um, I love him dearly. But uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that, and I didn't really go into that, except to talk a little bit about the failure of the, you know, the social imagination. And we, we've really got to look at that. Uh, we, we we didn't we weren't wise enough to understand and anticipate what this was doing to us until it was too late. Uh, but now now that we do, I mean I think it's great potentially great technology, uh, amazing technology. But how do we get control of it? You know how do we uh, democratize it? Um, I wrote a piece for Salon and. 2013 about regulating uh, data uh, data companies as uh, public utilities. And people thought I was insane and or nationalizing them. People thought I was absolutely insane. And uh, now it's like a lot of people are talking about it. They should be because we this is too powerful to be in the hands of, of uh, private sector. I was reading today about quote unquote woke Google art, uh, you know, that controversy where, have you followed that? Uh, where the mm -hmm. Google art app, well, I couldn't get it to work because almost everything I asked, no matter how innocuous, uh, that request violates our rules. For something I was writing about the social behavior of ants, I wanted to like lightheartedly give me a watercolor sketch of an ant with angel wings, right? Because it was just, you know, talking about how uh, altruism among ants. No, that violates our 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 customer use. Is it really? Why? But apparently, the what people are. I was reading the big controversy because people would say, uh, "Draw me a picture of the founding fathers of America," and it would draw like a black woman, and so it would yeah. begin yeah, to I think, like, the, I think it must have been programmed right? to to make like group scenes diverse. And it's just like not right. smart enough to like figure out what it should suspend that rule. Right. And then people were saying, you know, uh, draw me some white women. And it would draw like, you know, non-white women. And then after a bunch of complaints, it said, we can't comply with your request because, you know, it's important to support diversity. And these people are fighting about it. And I'm like, I'm reading this. And no, the answer to this is orthogonal to what you're fighting about. The answer to this is a corporation 
should not be deciding this either. You know, I mean, I, I applaud sure. their values, if not their execution or their attempted <laughs> values, but it, 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 it should, or their simulated values, but uh, um, it shouldn't be up to them. You know, I mean, this is not, they're doing there is something you know. like particularly grotesque about like the AI. Sim- I mean, I don't know. I mean, grotesque is too strong. But there's something particularly ridiculous about the automated simulation of of those values. Like I, I remember, um, I was uh, I was sitting uh, last year, right? Because I think it was the I think I remember it was like shortly before the New York Live Show we did. Uh, I I remember sitting with uh friend Jason uh in a uh cafe in uh, Rosarito in Mexico and um and he'd asked his phone something was, hey Siri blah 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 question and uh and um and Siri gave him the answer just out of habit right being in Mexico said gracias and the phone and Siri said I, I I'm sorry I don't understand that and just joking around he says oh well that's cuz you're a racist uh, and apparently Siri's programmed response to accusations of racism is no, I am an anti-racist. Oh, really? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah. I don't really need an racist or anti-racist. <laughs> I just need to know, uh, you know, where the Mexican restaurant is or whatever he was asking, you know? Uh, yeah. I don't really need to get my ethics programmed. Uh, it's, it's all, you know. Yeah, uh, you know, but it does go with with the sort of general dismalness of the you know version of the future that that we're in that you talk about. That even as you do have you know, as Jake was saying, that kind of sense of future shock uh, a fair amount. Or you know, when you pull back to think about certain things, it's you know, there's a certain quality of. Um, I often kind of think like. You know, it's like a little bit like a cyberpunk future, except for not like fun or cool in any way. Um, I got and, the lighting. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but. Yeah, no, you. There you go. You know, I wrote, during the whole uh, height of the Bush uh, security business, my son actually uh, pointed out to me we were at the airport, and the announcement said. The today's threat level is orange. And he went, Dad, that's dystopian. That's really dystopian. I said, you are totally right. You nailed it. It's completely dystopian. It's so dystopian. And it's so like, I mean, it's kind of heartwarming in a way that it's like as as much as sadly we didn't get rid of any of the more substantive parts of the post-9-11 security state. Uh, I, I suppose at least give Obama credit for that much. He did get rid of the stupid fucking color-coded uh, alert yeah, system. Yeah. Uh, that that was because which was so which was such a bizarre insult to everybody's intelligence. That's like okay, you know this is never going to go to green because then you'd be telling people they don't need to be worried, and that's just not the mission, right? And you don't um, need us anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and it's never going to go to red because it's like it was always really unclear what red would even mean. I mean, is the Constitution suspended? You know, can they? Like, right. You know, right. so 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 it was always like yellow, orange, or they came up with like this weird shit, like elevated orange, because uh, you know, because I always had to be in this very narrow range, which really defeated the purpose. 
Right, right, right. It's like rating an Uber ride, you know. <laughs> uh, like somebody said, you know, the two ratings you can give are five, and I want somebody to lose their livelihood. I mean, right. the, <laughs> the, the, that's dystopian. And to me, it's dystopian to have uh, a society where, I mean, I think it's great to give your pronouns and all that, but a society that encourages you, uh, a political culture that encourages you to A, give your pronouns and support diversity, but B, look the other way while we're slaughtering women and children in Gaza. I mean, that to me is, uh, it's like being uh, held prisoner by a murderous clown. You know, it's just, it, it's horrific to me. I mean, because one does not, one of these things does not match the others, right? I mean, it's, if you care about respecting diversity, respecting women, respecting ethnic and religious minorities, then how come you're killing so many ethnic minorities and women and, 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 and uh, you know, disabled people and gay people and everybody, trans people and everybody else that lives in Palestine? You know, I mean, what the hell's the matter with you? You know, you, you don't yeah, mean I what you say. I keep imagining a future where this has been so completely effective that you can have uh, no-cost uh, liberal guilt uh, in Israel and someday Knesset meetings can start with land acknowledgments that, you know, this, this is the, this is the oh, traditional God. land of the Palestinian people. Uh, oh, my God. What a horrible thought because it's so believable. Uh it really is, yeah. The land acknowledgments for that, yeah. And yeah, no, but, but I mean, like all of that stuff is like the. I mean, everything you're describing. I mean, it's like it's. I mean, you're right. There is this obvious grisly disconnect, but it's also all of that stuff is the is the theater of performative inclusiveness, uh, which right. you know you say, okay, well, why you know why do you even feel the need to do that if if they if the thing itself is okay. Right. Like if, if, if the under, you know, if the underlying realities, you know, are, are what they would be. Right. I mean, this is something that scratches that itch of like, Oh, we have this sense of injustice. So it's like the Bruce Schneier, you know, security syllogism when he's like making fun of airport security, you know, something must be done. We have done something, you know, here's something therefore, you know, let's do it. Right. Like this is like, Oh, you know, we have this sense of, of social injustice, which is not wrong, but then, Oh, what are we going to do about it? Well, we're not going to do anything that would involve redistributing any resources or inconveniencing anybody in any real way, but what can we do? We can give you a lot of justice theater, right? So, so we'll, we'll just do a, um, a tremendous amount of that, you know, we'll, we'll do, um, you know, we're going to make a big show of, uh, you know, like we can, you know, we could have, what was the thing that when the Valley labor report guys were here, we, um, we're listening to this podcast that was put out by professional union busters that, uh, that started out with, with everybody saying their pronouns. And I think they actually did a land acknowledgement maybe too. Uh, but you know, the, the, before they got to, we're all a big family here and you don't need a union and, you know, uh, everybody, you know, we're all, you're all associates, right? Cause you know, that's, uh, all of that stuff, to, all of that first stuff doesn't cost the company anything. And, you know, I'm sure you, I know you've seen the video or uh, the CIA recruitment video, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a cisgender uh, millennial with generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> <laughs> 
right, right. And I'm the CIA. The uh, I will assassinate anybody, uh, any political leader. Or to me, the ultimate was the bank CEOs taking the knee during Black Lives Matter uh, or putting black squares in their Twitter bios. And while they were lobbying Congress to make sure they could still get away with redlining uh, black communities, you know, okay. Right. You know, I mean, performative is the word. Yeah, I always, it's one That's of those dystopia. Like Trump having been president that I have to remind myself, like, I feel like about once every three months, I remember that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, uh, Nelton Kente cloth, and uh, and every time it comes back to my mind, it's like, wait, really? That that happened? Um, yeah. Apparently it did. Uh, but uh, it did. But, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I I have uh, I I do have one self indulgent thing I wanted to do before before we ended. I I could not figure out a way okay. of like making this organically fit into the flow of the conversation. But um, okay, shoehorn it in. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We'll just awkwardly shoehorn it in at the end. Uh, yeah. So in the uh, in uh, in the essay, uh, you you mentioned in passing, but with like a strong recommendation. You know, we you know uh, this uh, my favorite uh, short story by by Robert Heinlein, uh, which is uh, which is called All You Zombies. Uh huh. Right. Right. It's uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there was a movie uh, that was based on in 2014 called Predestination, which is not great. It's okay. It's like it, it sort of takes everything uh, that's in uh, it takes everything that's in the story and then realizes that doesn't quite fill a movie and adds some other stuff that it shouldn't have. Oh, but uh, but uh, but the but you know part part of why I um, I like that story so much. It's a time travel story that can be. Um, I guess accurately summarized by a man walks into a bar, you know, a man, uh, there's, there's, this one guy in that story. Right. Uh, and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, is, is that it's such a, you know, it's such a rare example of, you know, of something that when it's done well, I really enjoy, but, uh, is extremely rare, uh, certainly, especially on the Hollywood side of things, which is, um, uh, portrayals of time travel that are actually internally consistent and, uh, right. and, and, and make sense and sort of don't require you to turn your brain off as you, as you watch, you know, until you get to, uh, get, until you get to the end credits, which are, you know, vanishingly rare. Right. But, uh, you know, but when I see one, I always really enjoy it. You know, it does the opposite. It, it, it forces you to think through the paradoxical, a nature of time travel. And in a sense, it's like a brilliant thought exercise, thought experiment, and uh, as well as a kind of a very artistic, uh, you know, way to present it. So uh, to me, it's one of those rare examples of a story that actually, particularly if you're younger, when you read it, you feel your mind sort of shifting in a I mean, I don't mean to sound too psychedelic, yeah. about it, but but it, it's really expanding your sense of possibility, you know, the way an M.C. Escher painting might, mm -hmm. you know, at the same point in your life. 
it, it, it's a beautifully done, you know, very carefully thought out uh, sort of taking it. I I think as far as it can go, really, uh, mm-hmm. of the uh, nature of the time travel paradoxes, it would apply to one individual. You know. Yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's right. You know, uh, I mean, I, I can you know I can think of other you know time travel stories that are consistent. Uh, even you know even the occasional blockbuster, the first Terminator, none of the rest, but uh, the uh, but none of them are as none of them are are as interested as that. So uh, so yeah, that that made me happy to uh, to see that little note in uh, in the essay. Uh, but uh, in any case, um, we could go on for a very long time, but everybody should uh, should read the essay, uh, which once again is called uh, "The Dystopias of Yesterday," and it's it's really it's really comprehensive. It 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 you know it, it sort of shows off this. Uh, you know, encyclopedic knowledge of all the science fiction of, of the era. And, you know, and there's all this sort of thoughtful examination of, of the world in which it's produced and the world that we're living now and how one kind of looks from the perspective of the other and, and how those past dystopias played into it. So I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, thank you so much, Richard. Pleasure as always. Oh, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Uh, it was uh, Rajay Esko, who's the host of uh, Zero Hour, which if you are not watching or, or listening to, uh, you should really get your life in order and do that. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, we are going to go to the post game for patrons uh, in uh, in just a moment. We're going to be joined by uh, by Victor and Ethan. Uh, who are people who I like, and so it's confusing that I continue to subject them to um, to, to content made by Ben Shapiro. But I am going to, in fact, continue to do that in uh, in the post game. Uh, so if you are a patron, uh, you should already have the uh, the link uh, for uh, for the post game. If you are not, there's really no time like the present. Patreon.com/slash Ben Burgess. Since we do not yet live in a uh, post-scarcity uh, communist utopia in uh, in which uh, all of our material needs are met and uh, and you know we can um, you know rent isn't an issue and you know I uh, can you know ask your replicator to you know to uh, to uh, to create you know nice whiskey for you and all that stuff. Uh, all the people you see on the screen do in fact have to make livings. So if you like what we're doing here. Uh, please do consider uh, please do consider uh, supporting it uh, through the patreon and you get the uh, patron exclusive post games every Monday and Thursday night access to the discord server sometimes early access to things and most of all our love and gratitude for keeping it going with that we are going to go go to the post game I don't know live long and prosper left is best <laughs> <laughs>